Hi, everybody. This is the Hear Me Now podcast that comes to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for spending time with us today. In this episode, we're going to explore a phenomenon that's not well understood. In the clinical literature, they're called auditory verbal hallucinations, sensory experiences that take place in the absence of any external stimuli while in a fully conscious state and with enough similarity to real perception to be considered out of the control of the person experiencing it. I'm talking about people who hear voices. In the culture, hearing voices can be a shorthand for someone who has a difficult time judging reality. It's sometimes used as a marker for psychosis. And while the mechanism and cause of the auditory verbal hallucinations are not understood, psychiatric medicine will often treat someone with the experience with drugs designed to lessen their occurrence to varying degrees of success and with side effects that can be troubling in themselves and lessen the quality of life. It's worth noting too, I think, that many of our foundational religious texts contain stories of individuals who heard voices or saw visions and who are revered as prophets or divine emissaries. Back in May of 2022, the New York Times ran a piece profiling Caroline Mazel Carlton, a woman in her late 30s who has heard voices since childhood and who found the antipsychotic medication that she took to be intolerable. She's part of a movement of people who are coming to terms with the experience of hearing voices and finding meaning in that experience of self-discovery. Ms. Mazel Carlton is involved on the board of Hearing Voices USA and with a peer counseling and support organization in Western Massachusetts called Wildflower Alliance. She does training on alternatives to suicide. And I want to say that I find Ms. Mazel Carlton's experience and her healing response to be pretty inspiring and fascinating. And I wanted to take the time to talk with her about that work that she's doing and about her experience. I do want to say first that there's going to be talk about suicide. And if you're listening to this episode and thinking about harming yourself, help is available call or text 988 and connect with someone today. Caroline Mazel Carlton joins me now. Welcome to the Hear Me Now podcast, Caroline. I'm so happy that you're here with us. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I want to start where I think a lot of listeners' curiosity would take them, and that's the nature of the voices that you hear. Would you describe them for me so I can understand something about your experience? Yeah, so when we're talking about voice hearing, this is an experience that in our country, one in 10 people will have at some point of their life. So when I share my experience, others might have a different one. But for me, one of the ways I categorize my voices is I have ones that sound near and then I have ones that sound far. So um, a frequent occurrence for me throughout the day is over my right shoulder, um, hearing a man's voice talk to me. He'll probably talk to me during this podcast. 
you know, he might say a range of things like, you know, that he's afraid of something. He might offer me something to say. He actually, this voice likes it when I talk about him, but sometimes when I share bits about my life, he gets nervous. And so he's been a part of my life for a long time and I hear him quite near to me. While other voices I hear, they might sound a bit more at a distance. For example, through my teenage years and a lot of my 20s, I heard a couple voices that would sort of talk about me. Um, I hear them less now that I'm an adult and I've worked through a lot of trauma in my life. But at that time, I could hear them somewhat at a distance behind me just saying things like, oh, Caroline, she's not going to make it today. She's Mm going to kill herself on Wednesday. And they wouldn't even talk to me directly, um, which some of my voices do. Well, honestly, most of my voices talk to me. uh, But that was one of the frustrating things about that. There's just a huge range of Mm -hmm. experiences people have. The voices that you hear, are you hearing them as if they were physically present near you? Like the near voice, is it is it distinguishable in any way from, say, if there was someone else in the room with you speaking to you? Yeah, slightly, ever so slightly. I hear him a bit more with an echo Recently, I was at Grand Central Station in New York City, and there is this place where you can stand in a corner and then the other person stands in another corner and they speak and you hear them. Some of my voices have that quality. Like when I when I did that with my husband, I'm like, that's what it often sounds like. Wow. Yeah. And we we do different in my work. We're always like doing different voice hearing simulations um, that we use to try to approximate it. Um, But that one felt like one of the best um, that I've experienced, because the thing about hearing voices that people sometimes forget is as voice hearers, we can also hear what is going on in our environment too. And often my voices are commenting on, you know, what's being said uh, or what's going on. And so Mm -hmm. that's why sort of some voice hearing simulations, they just use headphones. And I'm not like a huge fan of that in terms of the accuracy to most people's experience. It sounds like the first voice, the male voice that you described, has a protective role, a counselor role. Am I misunderstanding that? No, I mean, that's definitely how I've come to understand him now. In fact, I see a lot of my voices with time. And as I've grown and I've talked to other voice hearers, a lot of my most challenging voices do have this protective capacity. So definitely that male voice, I call him Frank. And there have been times when me and him haven't gotten along, like he's very, could be extremely loud and aggressive in his protection. But 
nowadays I'm less likely to shoot the messenger and realize, hey, like there's something big going on that could potentially be traumatic. And he's afraid of like being re-traumatized. Similarly, I have this woman's voice that I hear and she's been one of my most challenging voices over the years. Um, She'll call me Missy, which is something I don't like. (laughs) But the truth is she sounds a lot like a woman who hurt me when I was a child. And so I think she also becomes quite active when I'm about to try something new. You know, I try not to see her as evil, even though she might be saying like, who do you think you are, Missy? Who do you think you are? But just acknowledge that, you know, you're about to try something really different. This could be a sign that this voice is trying to protect you from being hurt again. So um, Mm -hmm. there's different ways that I respond to my voices um, in order for us to work better as a team. That's fascinating, Caroline. I'm curious, the term hearing voices is seems pretty common in the literature. And it's interesting to me because it's not hearing people. It's as if the voice is depersonalized in some way. Is that purposeful? I love that question so much because honestly, in my work with others, supporting others with this experience, we're not always using the phrase hearing voices because people have many different frameworks for what they're hearing. So we might describe it as hearing trauma echoes or hearing our ancestors or Mm. hearing a demon. Like people identify this experience in many different ways. And what I found most useful is to explore the language that fits best for them. Give someone identifies their experience as being the government, not saying, oh, that can't possibly be, but exploring with them their experiences with authority um, and where they might have felt oppressed. So the phrase hearing voices, it really is an umbrella term. And I think that there's some great value in looking at does this term really encapsulate what's going on? The hearing voices movement, it's both a mental health reform movement, but it's also a social justice movement for greater acceptance and rights for voice hearers. So when they chose back in the late 80s, sort of the name Hearing Voices Movement and Hearing Voices Network, their idea was to kind of reclaim a marginalized phrase, kind of like queer. Right. Uh, So hearing voices in the movement um, and reform movements is like that. And they figured, hey, we're going to put this marginalized experience in the center. We're going to reclaim it. But there's a wide variety of folks whose individual experiences fit under that umbrella. That's really useful. This is the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins, and my guest today is Caroline Mazel-Carlton. 
She was profiled in a story in the New York Times earlier this year, and we're talking about her experience hearing voices and the work she does helping other voice hearers. Caroline, do you remember the first voice that you heard? Yeah, I definitely do. It's it's an early memory of mine. Um, I was five years old and um, I was at a daycare where, um, which someone had run out of her home. And it was a place that I had experienced what I now understand to be abuse, but in that environment, it was framed as punishment. And um, the first time I heard a voice was actually in that environment. Um, And it was the voice of this man over my right shoulder who I have described already, Frank. Um, And I was sitting next to like my big bird, big wheel. And I was watching this woman who, who had hurt me um, pretty badly and and in humiliating ways. I was sort of watching her to make sure, you know, I knew where she was and if she was headed in my direction. And she turned to her friend and she said, you know, Maureen, there ain't a cloud in the sky today. And um, I remember very clearly hearing this man's voice say, they're liars, they're liars. There are clouds in the sky. They're liars. And I hate them. And for me, it was like, um, I hadn't been, I was five. So for some of us that have this experience younger, we're not initially taught to fear it until later. So it wasn't something that um, frightened me it it just kind of was what it was and that voice has stayed with me um over time and what i'll say is rates of voice hearing are quite high in children much higher than one in ten um and the for a lot of kids it it doesn't follow into adulthood but if you have you know, sometimes these voices, they come as a sign that something's not quite right and something needs to change. And unfortunately, if it doesn't, um, if things get more difficult in life, sometimes the voice will get louder and more provocative or we'll start to hear more voices. And that was definitely the case in my life. So by the time I was a teenager, I was hearing quite a few more voices. Um, And the voices at that time were often crying, screaming, Mm -hmm. yelling, or making these difficult predictions, um, reflecting sort of the, there was bullying happening, a lot of bullying in school. Um, I was bullied because of the side effects of this, the neuroleptic drugs. So yeah, my voices began to reflect that greater stress and um, that issues had not been resolved in my life. Hmm. So that Frank voice 
has been, it sounds like a, a pretty constant companion. Right. Um, and a protective one, a benevolent one, uh, perhaps cautionary, perhaps sometimes louder in the caution, but with a with the concern of protecting Caroline or looking out for you. Yes. I mean, he he has not always been viewed that way in um, in mental health environments, but that is how I view him now. And what I'll say about this voice, I do see him as benevolent and sometimes other people would not because he speaks um, in some really extreme ways sometimes. Like he'll tell me people, there's been times when he's told me people are coming to kill you. Um, he's told me things like you need, you need to protect yourself. You need to carry a knife. Um, one time he even, he told me to punch someone in the face. Um, so for me, it's, really looking at the message beneath his fear and concern and having the space to evaluate it, which now I really do because I talk to other voice hearers all the time. It's part of my job. And part of my job is figuring out how do we live in greater peace with this experience and so a lot of the times it means how do I make myself feel safe, like in this physical moment, and also at the same time, look at the deeper metaphor of a voice. And I'll, I'll just give you an example of what that means. Um, yeah. Like there was a time in my life where I was insistently hearing this voice that was telling me to kill myself um, just constantly over and over. And I remember this was when I had, I'd been, I'd become employed. I was working as a peer support specialist in a hospital. And one of the things I would do is I would sit in movie theaters before my shift started in the evening. <laughs> Um, but finally what I did was I said to this voice, you know what? You're right. Um, I should kill myself. You're right. Uh, I should kill myself and I will, but first I have to read every word of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, every word. And like the voice what happens often when you negotiate with these voices is the voice kind of backed off, like it felt heard, but like deep down and no offense to any of your listeners. Like I knew that there was no way I was going to actually make it through like three whole books about elves and orcs. Um, but it bought me this, it was a negotiating tactic and a lot of us as voice hearers learn these ways to negotiate, sort of these half-hearted, halfway, um, meeting your voice halfway. But, you know, eventually what I had to figure out was that when I'm hearing a voice that's telling me I need to die, usually there is something in my life that needs to end. 
and it's not like my physical heart has to stop beating, right? But often there's a role or a relationship at that time, both the job I was in, um, the job I was in was causing a lot of moral injury in the way I was expected to treat others like me and that needed to end for me. And I was in a relationship certainly with a partner that it just, it, it needed to come to an end. And so that's what I mean about like, can we engage with our voices on a comprehensive level? And certainly, you know, my practice um, and my work, it's like, let's not just constantly ignore it or numb it or block it out. Usually that's not a great strategy to deal with issues, to just ignore them, ignore them, ignore them. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of globally, right? Right. Part of what I heard you say there is you learned in that negotiating with the voice, like you learned a technique that allowed you to live with this experience in a way that gave you meaning. Is your sense talking to other voice hearers that everyone has to go through that individually or are there people who never really come to that understanding and struggle somehow with, with a voice? Oh yeah. I think doing this is really hard to do all on your own and in a vacuum. So for me in my life and in my work, um, it's about eliminating the silence, shame, and social isolation um, that come with voice hearing. I think those things can be really deadly. Um, I think it's much easier to come to some of these conclusions and find this peace with support. And when at that time in my life, I did not have support of the Hearing Voices Network like I do mm -hmm. now, but um, I was at that time skating on a roller derby team, which was... <laughs> <laughs> a tremendous support for me and skating roller derby taught me a lot about how to work on a team with some really big personalities and people that might have say extreme things at times. I, I'm not going to use some, the roller derby language <laughs> that we use on your radio program, but that gave me a community and it gave me strategies to survive that moment. But what has really kept me going is getting involved in this community where like, I know some people might find the way I'm talking about my experience new or different, but there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of other voice hearers out there. Um, people like Ray Waddingham, Jackie Dillon, those are women that uh, Elizabeth Spalmhomer, those are women in Europe that um, are big role models to me. Um, so there's, 
I'm not the only voice here out there that talks this openly and um, doesn't blame themselves for hearing voices or like mm -hmm. being a flawed, genetically imperfect being, but looks at the context of why I'm having this experience. Uh, it's probably due to causes and conditions in my environment. And then the big piece beyond breaking the silence and the shame is making sure that we don't feel alone. So uh, a passion of mine is developing peer support um, environments where people can come together and yeah, there's, there's absolutely no substitute for the support of community. Like if I'm having to deal with five voices all by myself, I'm going to get really tired. I need to know that there's other people that have my back and are invested in, you know, making it work, making my relationship with my voices better and my relationship with the community strong. Yeah. And you can throw an elbow if you have to based on your roller derby days. <laughs> Absolutely. My guest today is Caroline Mazel Carlton. You might remember her from the circuit as Mazel Tov Cocktail. We're talking about her experiences with hearing voices. And you can find links to the Hearing Voices Network USA and Wildflower Alliance in Western Massachusetts on our website hearmenowpodcast.org. There's also a link to Daniel Bergner's really excellent story in the New York Times, which ran back in the spring of this year. Caroline, tell me about your decision years ago to stop taking antipsychotic medication. So for me, that decision was mostly informed by the amount of side effects that I was experiencing and the benefits just not being enough to really justify the suffering that I was caused. So for folks like myself who hear voices or deal with big states of mood, like what's really popular is to prescribe dopamine blocking drugs. So often they're marketed as antipsychotics I don't love that word because they don't work that way for everyone or they stop working. So what happens to me and a lot of people, if you block all the dopamine receptors in our brains, um, is everything slows down. So all our cognitive processes slow down. All of our metabolic processes slow down. Our motor control that slows down. So when I was on these type of drugs, I was getting bullied for being heavier than other kids my age. Uh, my hands would shake really violently. So I would get made fun of for that because I couldn't even lift a fork to my mouth sometimes without making a huge mess. Uh, sometimes it was hard for me to like, even like light a cigarette. And uh, so there were all these struggles. So what happened in my life was I was living on a therapeutic farm 
And this was an environment that changed my life because I was volunteering and taking care of animals, which was the first time that I'd really taken care of any other being before. And it was really changing how I viewed myself. I was getting a lot of exercise, rest, healthy food. I felt like I had purpose and meaning in my life. And I decided to do an experiment. I decided that um, once I was given self-administer privileges, that I would stop taking these drugs and I would just see how people responded to me. But I didn't want to tell people that, and this was just my path, and I want to say this was a while ago before a lot of more progressive views were known. I didn't want to tell people that I was coming off them because there was so much fear and I knew that if I told people that if I so much as laughed too loud or dropped a tear over a TV show that people would immediately say, you need to go back on, you need to go back on. So I just did a blind experiment where I didn't tell the folks around me that I was changing something about my daily practice. And what I found was people actually really were complimenting me a lot. So they were like, oh, you're losing so much weight. You must be eating a better diet and exercising more. Oh, you're so much more engaged. Caroline, that's really great. You're so much more motivated. Caroline, that's really great. Uh, Dopamine can be a big part of motivating us and, and neuroplasticity and all these things. And so people were noticing now that I wasn't being flooded with dopamine blockers, they were actually complimenting changes in the way I was acting. So that was what motivated my choice. And so it worked well for me. And so I stayed I just didn't take them anymore. And what that allowed me to do was to be able to participate in other healing modalities that I don't think I would have. Without dopamine, it's it's hard to have neuroplasticity and, and build new connections. Do you think it's possible for someone um, who's hearing voices who wants to go off of dopamine blockers to talk with their psychiatrist and their behavioral health team and say, look, I, I don't want to take these anymore and I, I want to come off of them and do it in a way that is, I don't know, monitored or um, more uh, involving others rather than sort of doing a sort of uh, cold turkey, I'm just going to stop taking them. I think that's one of the, that's the world I'm fighting for. Honestly, I don't want people to have to do things in an isolated way like I had to. I want people to be able to do it in a supported way because for me, I was lucky enough to live in an environment at that time that I had very few stressors. I do think it is ideal to taper slowly and with support. 
Now, here's what I'll say to the people listening. There's a lot of clinicians, in fact, most clinicians are not trained well in tapering and withdrawing for the, from these medications. It's just not studied. Sounds like there's plenty of room for providers to learn more, uh, both clinically and from their patients a- anecdotally. Yes. I, and that, I, that is a dream of mine and of many others. People email me all the time. They're like, Caroline, can you help me find a psychiatrist that will help me taper? And they're very hard to find. And I, I want that to be more widely available. So if you are a provider and you're listening, I hope you'll begin having these conversations with with those that you prescribe for. And your colleagues. Absolutely. Caroline, you've mentioned that it over the years, one or more of the voices that you hear has urged you uh, towards self-harm. I'm wondering if you have a safety plan in place now a way of ensuring your well-being. Yeah. Uh, Again, I think a great insurance policy is talking about your experience, connecting with others. So um, in my community, we even have at Wildflower Alliance uh, what are called alternatives to suicide groups, where we come together as people who experience suicide come up for us in various ways. And we have this practice about talking about the thoughts, feelings, and conditions that are connected to that. When you do that, you start to develop a support network where you're learning from other people that have navigated these tough times, and you're learning more about yourself. So for example, with Frank, I know that if I don't take time to listen to him or my other voices, at least a couple times a day, things can get really extreme. Um, It's also good for me to communicate with others, like kind of the content of what they have to say. Now, this is non-judgmental understanding people, right? Like there's definitely folks out there I would not still, even though I'm on the radio, speak openly, seek out to speak openly about this. And then it's also important for me, I look at the context. So, you know, the last time that Frank was telling me that people were trying to kill me. It was because I was dealing with this really tough situation at work and I didn't have a lot of support. And so I Mm. think he thought like that people were trying to kill me, but what turned out was there were people that were willing to help, but I just, I needed to ask for it. So for a lot of voice hearers, Think about your environment. Think about, can you lower the stress in some way? Can you minimize your own exposure to things like violence or harsh words or abuse? 
what can you do with your external life um, that will maybe um, help calm that voice down? There's lots of things we can do. Um, you know, my personal path includes a lot of spiritual practices. I am a Jewish person. Jewish community helps me. Um, I also do things like yoga and meditation. Um, and in terms of more clinical supports, um, I do a trauma healing modality called neurofeedback that has been life changing for me and helpful with my own voices fear. So yeah, um, I would say a good plan is making sure your current environment um, feels supportive as possible. And then if things do really fall apart, knowing what you need in those moments. So I know for me, um, acute psychiatric hospitalization is actually more stressful. Um, luckily, I live in a state where there's a peer respite house where I've gone um, when Frank was really freaked out. Um, and that's a less institutional environment, much more homey, much more warm. And, um, you know, there, if you read the New York Times story that I recently did, it has the anecdote where when I went there, one of the peer support staff um, played Frank a song and sang to him to help soothe him. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Andy Bereski who played <laughs> uh, Free Bird by Leonard Skinnerd on the guitar. And while well, me and Frank, we both cried. And it was this really powerful healing moment that helped me get through a time of crisis. The alternative to suicide work that you do must be incredibly gratifying. Um, and let's talk a little bit about in detail about the, the sort of healing work that you do, uh, helping others. Yeah. Um, alternatives to suicide groups were really life-saving for me. So one of the things that my voices and me personally struggled with were working in conventional mental health system jobs where I was expected to tell people to do things they didn't want to do, like try to convince people to take drugs that they didn't want to take, or that looked at you know locking people up and away from their communities a lot of the time that was viewed as what suicidal people or people hearing voices needed. Yet a lot of the people I met were deeply despairing to be taken out of their community in that way. And it hadn't worked for me, but I, I always assume I'm just this uniquely messed up person. I don't anymore, but like throughout my twenties, I thought I was like, teens and 20s, I thought I was uniquely messed up. But then I found out I'm not that weird after all. 
Um, so alternatives to suicide is um, a harm reduction approach that much like the hearing voices movement, we learn to live with thoughts of suicide, express them and explore them in environments where it's safe to really feel our feelings. So one of the things I struggled with um, with the conventional mental health system is a lot of times those systems really view suicide as the problem. And they're like, suicide's the biggest problem. We need to stop suicide. So we're going to take all the guitars out of the music room because someone could hang themselves on a guitar string. And then people are like, well, what about the music that like helps me deal with the pain? But it's like, no, we have to stop suicide. But like, I, I kind of get where they're coming from in some respects. But if you really talk to people like myself that have felt suicidal, you'll find that suicide isn't actually their problem. Suicide is their solution. Suicide is their solution for like a whole host of issues, trauma, economic issues, breakup, um, loss of identity. And so if we're just focusing on eliminating suicide, we're never actually getting to the real problems and the real mm -hmm. feelings that people need to express and be validated for um, and to have like a space to work through. So alternatives to suicide is an approach that helps create those spaces where we're not immediately jumping to contain someone. Um, we're also in this approach, we're not focusing on trying to predict behavior. Um, the thing about humans is we're actually really bad at predicting behavior. So instead of focusing on if someone is going to die by suicide, instead we focus on why. Why do you wanna leave this world? What's going on? What do you need from your community right now? Instead of mm -hmm. assuming that we know um, because right. everyone's different. Some people listening to us are going to criticize me for not challenging you on the sort of rejection of conventional mental health treatments. I want to acknowledge that thought that is in some listeners' heads right now. I think I understand it, why, what motivates it, but I also think I understand what's motivating your move away from conventional care. And it might be because care might be missing from that conventional mental health environment. As you were describing the suicide alternatives, I thought, you know, if you were dealing one-on-one -on -one with someone who was considering suicide, you wouldn't take away their guitar and you wouldn't lock them up. You would sit with them Maybe just sit with them for a while and be present. Um, so in some ways, it seems like the fault that conventional mental health faces is volume of people. 
like the volume might be too great to deal with. And a system has grown up where warehousing people is easier than sitting one-on-one with them. Yeah. And, you know, I know some of the, the ideas that I'm talking about might feel new to some folks, like especially um, in the United States with the particular healthcare system that we have. Um, but I hope what people will see is that we're all kind there's, there's not like two sides to this issue. I hope I, my hope is that there's simply, you know, the shared mission to reduce human suffering. Um, and what I'll say is I think that a lot of issues have been laid at the feet of the mental health system to solve that aren't necessarily going to be fixed by, you know, a pill or, um, you know, a three day stay in a locked unit. Um, We know that in our country, suicide rates continue to climb. we know that the morbidity gap between people like myself who are diagnosed with schizophrenia or bipolar, um, that we're actually dying even earlier compared to non-diagnosed people. So we're not, we haven't been moving forward. We haven't been getting the outcomes that I think we all want to see. I think we all want to see a world where, um, there is less suicide where people are living longer, fulfilling lives. And so my hope is that we begin to look at new ways forward. And I think that includes sort of a greater accountability. Um, So we've seen that uh, psychiatric hospitalization isn't actually a best practice that typically suicide rates increase like during that time. And um, some meta-analyses, a recent one by the Journal of American Medicine, showed that suicide rates often increase for up to two years. Um, Hmm. And so I think we need to start thinking about the information we have about what is what's actually causing suicide. So we know that issues like student debt, um, I hear people struggling under other financial factors, not being able to pay the bills. We also have very high rates of suicide amongst trans folks, um, rising rates of suicide among young Black youth. Um, indigenous people have an extremely high rate of suicide and all of these social issues. I don't think that building um, more psychiatric hospitals is going to solve these. I think it takes a greater commitment on all of our parts to create a world that people actually want to live in um, where they're Mm. feeling celebrated and affirmed um, where they feel more connected to life. 
Um, and that's definitely our goal, like in the organization I work for, the Wildflower Alliance is healing through community building and creating yeah. more acceptance. Right. You know, um, an idea that has been in my head for going on 40 years now comes from an epigraph in a poem that was written by a college professor of mine. And it the epigraph is in Latin and it starts, uh, natura in reticulum sui genera connects it. And it, the translation of it is, um, nature knits up her children in a web, not in a chain, but men and women can only follow by chains because our language can only handle one idea at a time. So we think in a linear fashion, but the truth of the matter is the world is webbed together in a multiple different ways. It's not a linear path. It's like there are connections everywhere. And when you talk about community building, that's what comes to my mind is that every way that you can build a connection with someone else in the community is going to be life preserving for people because it gives you, it gives you human connection and that's what gives meaning to your life. Absolutely. And I love that quote about the web because ultimately like I do see us, we've evolved to live in societies. So like all this extra um, prefrontal cortex, all this brain matter that we have evolved over, you know, the thousands of years, we've built all of that neural structure so that we are better able to connect. Um, and I think that our brains are much more web-like. Um, they're kind of like a universe unto themselves and people are very complex and, you know, I've supported a lot of people that were right at that place where life was becoming untenable, just unlivable. And what's interesting is, you know, in a moment, it can be, you know, we might be incredibly suicidal and want to end our lives. And that's very much true. And yet in that very same moment, um, we also might be wondering who's going to win mm -hmm. this season of RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> or, you know, in that very same moment, we might have a deep spiritual calling or, you know, really be looking forward to our niece's, you know, 10th birthday party. And so I think often like in when I've been supporting people, it's about supporting them in their wholeness and seeing mm -hmm. a human being in front of me instead of just a problem to be solved. Mm -hmm. And um, if we can take that view, um, honor our complexness and our resilience, it will be really helpful. And I also think what I'll say, and I know um, that this can be controversial too, but it's, it's high time that we start listening more to the people most impacted by these issues, the people who themselves 
hear voices, the people who themselves navigate thoughts of suicide, because, you know, a lot of times we have this culture that really emphasizes academic or book learning. And I think that stuff can be really great. Um, But we're missing something if we're not talking enough to the people impacted and what what they've needed. There's so much survivor wisdom out there to tap into. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes I'll be supporting someone and, you know, they'll have been through so much. And I'll be like, you know, you all that you have survived, it's just you know, it boggles my mind, like all that you've been through, like, yeah. what is your secret? You have survived for 30 years, you know, despite the trauma, despite the lack of resources, what's your secret? Like what, what has kept you here? Um, and what I'll say is when I ask people that question, it's not often a clinical intervention. It may be that they have gotten involved in some sort of community, like roller derby helped save my life, peer support um, and social activism helped totally transform my life from a very, very limited one. Right. And so people will usually name like a relationship or a community that has kept them going despite inconceivable odds. Right. And it, and that might be completely invisible to people around them. Oh, the, you know, her connection with the book group is what's keeping her alive and keeping her connected. Uh, or her her connection with her synagogue or her church or, you know, the, the walks that she takes with a friend. That's what is connecting her, kind of tying her to the life that she sometimes wonders whether she values or not. You know, it's like um, what you mentioned your Jewish um, spirituality. And one of the ideas that I have loved is this, the notion of, is it Dayenu? Yes. You know, it, right. If, if this had happened, that would have been enough. The idea that the smallest thing can be crucial in how we make it through life. Sometimes people like underestimate their capacity to be a healer. Sometimes people think, oh, I need to have a PhD or I need to have this particular clinical training. And honestly, what I've seen, sometimes that can get in the way because it creates this huge power dynamic between it creates this world of like the fixers and the fix, the helpers versus the helped. But I think that's really mm-hmm. a false binary. That's not really, that's a binary I've seen spoken of, but I don't know how realistic it is. There's also the notion of a wounded healer. Right. And I think we all, we're all wounded healers in some way. We all walk through this world with wounds and I was talking to someone yesterday who, you know, was very suicidal throughout life, um, was dealing with um, a chronic illness. 
And she recounted to me this moment that was incredibly transformative for her where, you know, she had been through all this treatment, but someone just sat down next to her and said, my God, it really sucks what you're going through. It just, (laughs) it sucks. I'm so sorry. And she was like, that felt so healing for me. So sometimes it's the smallest amount of validation to just connect with the person so that they feel seen and known. Um, yeah. Just to say, man, I I am so sorry you're going through that. Instead of just trying to fix the person or cheer them up to feel with them. Caroline, I'm so grateful for you taking the time to talk. Great to be invited. Yeah, it, it's fascinating and it's been really uplifting. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Caroline Mazel Carlton is the director of training for the Wildflower Alliance and the Hearing Voices Research and Development Project. You'll find links to those organizations on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. The program is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Connect with us on Twitter, where we're human underscore caring. Our podcast is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have tons of research help from medical librarians, including Carrie Grinstead, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. Join us in two weeks when we explore firearms and gunshot wounds as a public health issue with trauma surgeon L.J. Punch, whose bullet-related injury clinic in St. Louis is treating one bullet wound, one life, one community at a time. He's a remarkable doctor. I hope you'll join us. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well. During the course of our interview, have you heard any voices? Yes, I have. I'm hearing, um, uh, he's a younger boy and he's telling me he wants to go outside. Mm